Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. Last episode, we covered the early history of the people of Madagascar, the arrival of Indonesian and East African settlers on the island, and the subsequent extinction of the island's megafauna. Today, we will take a closer look at the earliest recorded history of Madagascar, the semi-mythological period known as the Age of the Vazimba. Season 4, Episode 3, The Vazimba, Hova, and the Marina. When studying the history of a culture, civilization, or even a time period, it seems like there is always a particular work of historical scholarship that stands above the rest and dominates the study of the field. The work in question doesn't need to be perfect. In fact, they're often highly flawed. They're typically written decades or centuries after the events they describe, they contain clear, identifiable biases, and sometimes venture dangerously close to being written off as mythology or folklore. They're also, in some regards, unoriginal, as they don't claim to be true primary sources, but instead compilations of earlier accounts. There are countless examples of these types of histories to list. Origins for ancient Rome, the records of the Grand Historian for China, the histories for classical Greece, and the Egyptiaca for Egypt. Modern sources can sometimes enter this canon of historical classics as well. I'd argue that in studying the later periods of Aksum, Tadese Tamrat was of similar service to what the previously listed writers provide to their own areas of study. For the Ashanti Empire, the compilation of stool histories by Ivor Wilkes or even Ajiman Prempa's own writings could be argued to constitute a similar caliber of helpful scholarship. Again, the value of these sources is derived not from any supposed perfection, but rather their ability to serve as a baseline. They are like the trunk of a tree, from which later scholars can criticize and form their own branches, which too will eventually sprout their own sub-branches of thought. In the study of Merina, the seminal historical work is the Tantara Neandriana et Madagascara, or the History of the Noblemen of Madagascar. The book, compiled by a Christian missionary in the 19th century, contains numerous written and oral sources on Malagasy history to form a complete narrative of the foundation and lifespan of the kingdom. It is the trunk of Malagasy historiography. The Tantara breaks Malagasy history into periods, with the oldest period being the semi-mythological time known as the Faha Vazimba. The question of who or what the Vazimba are cannot be simply answered with a singular explanation. In fact, the Vazimba problem, or trying to decipher who or what the term Vazimba actually refers to, has been an omnipresent motif in Malagasy historiography. Over time, the dominant answer to this problem has shifted pretty substantially. However, due to their unquestionably important role in the foundation of the Merina kingdom and culture, it's essentially impossible to construct the kingdom's history without bringing up this enigmatic concept of the Vazimba. Now, I've tried rewriting the section a few different times, and to be honest, all of them ended up being pretty confusing, just as a product of how confusing the subject matter is. However, after all this trial and error, I think the least confusing way to tell this story is to just tell the most common version of the Marina origin straight up, introduce a cliff notes of key events as we go along, and then explain further in the end. Now, keep in mind that this is far from the only extant narrative that exists of early Marina history. According to one source I've used extensively in this research, that is, What's the Story of the Vazimba by Sarah Dugal, there are in fact seven common archetypes of the Vazimba legendary history, 
with even these archetypes varying from telling to telling, or falling generally under one story's archetypes while incorporating elements of another. With all that said, let's begin with the most widespread retelling. The tradition relayed by Malagasy historian Ravelomanga Randriana Rivo and the Tantara itself. Before the arrival of Africans or Indonesians to Madagascar, the island was inhabited by a semi-human race called the Vazimba. They were creatures with a very unpleasant appearance. Short, hairy all over, red eyes, they had enormous mouths featuring enormous teeth. Their heads were flat and almost blocky, with cartoonishly large ears. The lifestyle of the Vazimba was simple and, in many ways, animalistic. The Vazimba wore no clothes, they had no knowledge of how to grow crops or even cook meat. Rather, they lived by foraging food from nature, and by raising cattle, who they never butchered, but instead only drank their milk. They had no ability to smelt metal, so instead they used tools made of sticks and hardened clay. Their handling of death was also primitive. The Vazimba had no property, and therefore they had no inheritance to pass on to their children when they died. Afterwards, their descendants would make no effort to worship or praise their ancestors, and instead forgot about them shortly after their passing. When Africans and Indonesians first arrived in coastal Madagascar, they immediately made contact with these strange, inhumane beings. The Vazimba, naturally hostile towards outsiders, kept their distance from the new arrivals. However, they did adapt a few ideas from their civilized Indonesian and African neighbors. From Africans on the west coast, they learned how to wear clothes. While from the Austronesians, they learned and began to speak the Indonesian-based Malagasy language alongside their otherwise distinct Vazimba tongue. Over time, though, the growth of the settler population along the coastal settlements disrupted the Vazimba lifestyle and forced them to retreat further inland into the highlands. The Vazimba's isolation in the mountains could not last forever, though. A group of Malagasy from the southeastern coast began to migrate into the Vazimba's mountain homeland. These people were the Hova. Hova was not an ethnic group, but rather a socio-economic class, consisting of free, typically land-owning farmers. Unlike the Vazimba, who had no complex social organization, the primary mode of political organization among the early Hova immigrants was the Deme. Deme were essentially extended families that collectively owned and worked their own land, with an assembly of familial elders acting as the decision-makers of the group. These clans were tight-knit, with members typically only allowed to marry within their own Deme. Due to a lack of higher political authorities at the time, Deme were largely autonomous in terms of power, essentially functioning as small states. Hova, as well as the Deme they were associated with, began to move into the highlands in ever-growing numbers, where they encountered the Vazimba already living there. Typically, in order to stay separate from their neighbors, the migrating Deme settled in defensible settlements at the apex of hills, while the Vazimba treated into the valleys between them. And, starting in the late 14th century, the Vazimba, clearly under the influence of their new, civilized neighbors, began to organize themselves into small states, even choosing kings and queens to rule over their villages. Despite their apparent differences, the Hova and Vazimba could not stay separate entirely. In fact, while the majority of Vazimba resembled putrid beasts, a few curious Vazimba were different. Some Vazimba women seemingly overcame their kind's propensity for ugliness and were, in fact, beautiful. One of these rare Vazimba beauties was named Rafohi. 
Rafoji, while still possessing the Vizimba's signature short stature, was as attractive as she was capable. Through her life, she slowly managed to build a small kingdom from her capital village of Medimanjaka, a lakeside settlement renowned for its tough walls and substantial moat. While it only consisted of her hometown and a few surrounding hamlets, by the end of her life in the 15th century, Rafoji's kingdom was one of the most impressive states in the central highlands. When Rafoji died, she passed the kingdom on to her daughter, an equally beautiful and capable woman by the name of Rangida. Rangida was, by all accounts, also a successful ruler. She expanded the area of Merimanjaka's authority, introduced new rituals of circumcision and ancestral prayer to her people, and even married a Hova man, with whom she birthed at least two sons. These sons are very important, as they would go on to play a monumental role in the foundation of the Merina state. They are the Romulus and Remus of Madagascar, the brothers Andrea Manelo and Andrea Mananitani. Now, by the end of her life, Rangita, ever the wise elder, did not try to deny or procrastinate her fate. Knowing that her time was coming soon, Rangita feared that her sons would begin fighting for power immediately after her passing. To prevent such a catastrophe, Rangita forced her sons to an unusual compromise. Rule over the kingdom would vacillate from brother to brother. One day, Andrea Manello would rule, and the next day, it was Andrea Mananitani's turn. The brothers promised to obey their mother's request, and the next day, she decided that her life would end on her own terms. She wandered into the lake's silver waters until her head sunk below the surface and never emerged again. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm going to have to leave you with a cliffhanger in regards to that story of the brothers swapping back and forth power in Merimanjaka. Don't worry, we'll come back to it next episode. For now, though, we have to take a closer look at the depiction of the Vazimba in the traditional histories see how well they jive or conflict with other Malagasy traditional histories and mythology, as well as to what extent they align with or deviate from scientific and archaeological evidence about Madagascar at the time. And finally, how much have later colonial narratives influenced the perception of Madagascar's mythical past? Stories of the Vazimba, the first peoples of the Malagasy highlands, have provoked a great deal of speculation among historians, both Malagasy and Western. When European writers first learned of the story of the Vazimba, they largely interpreted the story through the lens of racialism and the ongoing process of imperialism in Africa. Upon hearing stories of short, ugly creatures, European observers immediately assumed that these people must have been African. Because, of course they did. As a result, the earliest attempts by Western writers to solve the Vazimba problem was to fit them into a racialized history. In this view, the Vazimba were a population of black Africans, likely pygmies, who lived a lifestyle of simplistic hunter-gatherers. Then, Austronesian settlers arrived. The racial and civilizational superiority of the Asian invaders led to their inevitable conquest of their primitive neighbors. Even some Malagasy elites adopted this idea, 
and use the Vazimba legend as a means to support a form of Austronesian racial chauvinism that positioned them as the superiors to their African neighbors. However, in more recent decades, historians, linguists, anthropologists, and experts on Malagasy mythology have successfully demonstrated the weakness of this theory on multiple fronts. First, let's get into the supposed association between the Vazimba and African pygmies. Now, it is true that much of Central and Southern Africa possesses a population of people labeled as pygmies. These people are, in fact, not even necessarily related to each other. Despite the popular view that they must all share an origin, these small-statured people of South and Central Africa are, in fact, not even necessarily closely related to each other. Linguists have generally come to the conclusion that there is no overarching pygmy language family, but rather are distinct, unrelated ethnic groups that are lumped together by outsiders due to their famous shortness. In fact, many pygmy populations in Central Africa are more closely related to neighboring non-pygmy people than to other neighboring pygmies. Regardless, the association of the Vazimba with pygmies in early theorizing is largely a product of, well, their description. In the legends, they are typically short, and often described as having dark skin and curly hair, traits that European observers thought were clear indications of a pygmy identity for the Vazimba. However, beyond a supposed resemblance to the people of the legend, there's really nothing else to associate the Vazimba with any extant pygmy languages. There's no linguistic stratum that resembles any existing pygmy languages that we know of in modern Malagasy, and there's no genetic evidence to support such a population ever existing in Madagascar. A stronger case could be made that if the Vazimba do represent the descendants of an African population living on Madagascar prior to Austronesian settlements, that they were the descendants not of pygmy people, but rather either Cushitic or Khoisan-speaking populations that lived in coastal East Africa prior to the Bantu expansion period. Not to mention, the resemblance to the Vazimba in the legend basically starts and ends with height. Pygmy peoples today do not have large ears, enormous teeth, or red eyes that the Vazimba purportedly did. This is just another case of you humorous scholars picking and choosing which elements of mythology fit their narrative and which ones don't. A stronger case could be made that if the Vazimba do represent the descendants of an African population living on Madagascar prior to outside settlement, that they were the descendants not of pygmy people, but rather either Cushitic or Khoisan-speaking populations that lived in coastal East Africa prior to the Bantu expansion period. After all, we know for pretty dang certain that there was a population of East Africans on Madagascar before Austronesian settlement, though these groups are assumed to have either never established a permanent population, or if they did, that this population was long extinct before Austronesian arrival. It's not really a long shot to argue that this culture, that we know for a fact was on the island at one point, did in fact survive in the highlands for a bit longer than presumed, is it? But while the pre-Bantu East African idea I think is more plausible than the pygmy hypothesis, it still has some serious shortfalls that need to be addressed. For starters, there's the utter lack of Cushitic or Khoisan roots in Malagasy vocabulary, or even more crucially, place names. Historically, when indigenous populations of a region are conquered and assimilated into a new dominant culture, while many elements of the original culture may gradually fade away, place names are particularly resilient. Think about how, despite the European conquest and subsequent colonization of, say, Mexico, Colombia, or the United States, each of these countries is still full of locations with indigenous names. Think Oaxaca, Bogota, or Kansas. In Ghana, many towns and cities, including the capital city of Accra, 
retain folk etymologies from the Guan language, which backs up the widespread theory that the Guan were the earliest extant people group to settle in Ghana. But in Highland Madagascar, even in places widely associated with the Vazimba, there are no such place names. Rather, the place names of the highlands are essentially monolithic, with the vast, vast majority of pre-colonial place names deriving from Austonesian roots. Genetically, too, there is little to nothing to support any substantial contribution by pre-Bantu East Africans into the highland gene pool, which, given that the legend overtly identifies intermarrying between Hova and Vazimba as one of its key plot points, doesn't quite add up. Which brings us to the most widely accredited theory of the Vazimba, that in terms of ethnicity and origin, the Vazimba are not all that different from the Hova at all. The Vazimba, too, were Austronesians from the Indonesian archipelago, but were simply arrivals from an earlier wave of migration. This theory seemingly aligns best with the genetic, archaeological, and linguistic evidence regarding the populations that lived in Highland Madagascar prior to widespread Hova migration. However, when it comes to the Vazimba legend, the earlier Austronesian migrants theory goes against just about every core detail or idea in the legend. The Vazimba in the legend are different from the Hova in just about every way. Yes, the Vazimba legends do typically identify them as being people with shorter stature, darker skin, and curlier hair than the Hova. So, if scientific evidence is strongly leaning toward the idea that the Vazimba were, in fact, rooted in the same culture and geographic origin as the Hova, then why do the legends describe them as being so different? Well, the somewhat uncomfortable answer is rooted in Malagasy beauty standards. Colorism is a phenomenon that we've discussed a bit on the show before, but not in great detail. If you're not aware, colorism is not exactly the same thing as racism, though they are often linked. Racism is a worldview which sorts people into arbitrary, pseudo-biological categories due to, among other things, skin color and geographic origin. Colorism refers to discrimination based solely on skin tone. Traditionally, and sadly in my view, Malagasy beauty standards to this day are highly colorist, with light skin being viewed as an inherently attractive feature. So while hopefully most people would balk at this idea today, the best guess among scholars for why Vazimba are described as dark-skinned is the same reason they are described as short, having big teeth, large hanging ears, and red eyes. By design, these descriptions are meant to pose the Vazimba as being the ultimate antithesis to Malagasy beauty standards. Archaeological evidence has also cast doubts on other elements of the traditional view of the Vazimba. Crucially, the idea that Vazimba were simple people who had no knowledge of farming, metalworking, or in providing homage to dead ancestors is contradicted heavily by the archaeological record. Archaeologists in the Malagasy Highlands have uncovered evidence of rice farming, iron metallurgy, and ritualized burials even before the purported Hova migrations took place. But... Okay, that just opens up more questions. Why would Malagasy legendary history frame the Vazimba as the ultimate embodiness of ugliness, simpleness, hostility, and just about every other negative trait? And why, in these myths, are there seemingly arbitrary exceptions to these rules? For every myth that frames the Vazimba as grotesque subhumans, there is a myth that depicts Vazimba, particularly Vazimba women, as beautiful, capable, intelligent, forward-thinking, and kind-hearted. Not to mention, Vazimba play a very important role in Malagasy folk religion, with people often praying to the souls of Vazimba for help in matters of business, farming, or especially conception. Well, one historian has what I think is a pretty compelling explanation for the contradictory treatment of the Vazimba in Malagasy history. 
1977, Gerald Berg, professor of history at Sweetbriar College, published a revolutionary article in the scholarly journal History of Africa. Hey, that's a pretty good name. His article, entitled The Myth of Racial Strife in the Maronite Kings List, caused ripples throughout the field of Malagasy history. Berg argued that scholars at the time were relying too heavily on uncritical readings of late 19th century Malagasy printed history. According to Berg, historians are treating these documents as unsullied depiction of the traditional Malagasy historical record, without considering that, by the time of their composition, imported European ideas, most notably Christianity and racialism, had very clearly influenced the texts. As we mentioned earlier, European arrivals on Madagascar often heard stories of the Vazimba and tried to shoehorn them into pre-existing European ideas of race and civilization. At the time, European academia was dominated by an ideology of racialized civilizational Darwinism, a pseudoscientific theory of history which argued that certain races were incapable of being truly civilized, and that they could only attain such a status if a superior race conquered, colonized them, and forced civilization upon them. These European scholars, therefore, often assumed that the Vazimba must have been an inferior race conquered by the relatively civilized Malagasy. European missionaries also played a large role in stimulating negative perceptions of Vazimba. We'll certainly get into this later in the series, but let's just say that in the later years of the Marinette Kingdom, Christianity became a major element of political and social life within Malagasy society with conflicts between Christians and practitioners of the traditional Malagasy religions becoming increasingly common and intense. According to Berg's theories, prior to the rise of Christianity on the island, Vazimba were universally an object of veneration, viewed as sacred ancestors. However, in an effort to challenge the traditional faith, missionaries painted the Vazimba as evil, disgusting, subhuman demons. And do keep in mind that the most prolific source of the Vazimba legend the Tantara, was itself compiled by a Christian missionary. Berg's theory is undeniably effective at explaining the seeming disconnect between different Vazimba legends. Those that portray the Vazimba as ugly, uncivilized beastmen are influenced by Christianity and racialism, while those that portray them as beautiful and wise people are holdovers from the venerational stance of traditional Malagasy religion. Berg's ideas have since become a dominant model in the study of early Madagascar. While there are some disagreements about the specific conclusions regarding certain myths and historical events, there is today a general consensus that, yes, Vazimba myths grew more negative after the spread of Christianity to the island. Another interesting wrinkle that further adds complication to the legacy of Vazimba in Malagasy history is the fact that many Marina people claim partial descent from them. And strangely enough, this claim was the most prevalent among the noble and aristocratic classes of the Marina kingdom. You see, land plays a very important role in the legitimacy of Malagasy hierarchy. People who could establish that they had an extensive line of ancestry within the land they live on, especially if there were well-maintained ancestral shrines, enjoyed a great deal of prestige from this lineage. Meanwhile, people who had no land, typically meaning recently captured enslaved laborers or recent immigrants, were perceived as the lowest rungs of society. As we'll see, this informal idea of prestige associated with ancestral land ownership will eventually calcify into a more rigid caste system. And it's worth remembering that the people at the top were the ones claiming Vazimba ancestry, since they provided the oldest possible claim to an ancestral presence on their land. 
In fact, some have gone so far as to claim that the idea of Vazimba as a separate cultural group at all is a myth altogether, and that this idea of an ancient mysterious people inhabiting Madagascar was, prior to Christian influence, merely a generic term for ancient ancestors used by noble classes to further legitimize claims to land in the highlands. This theory is personally a little bit beyond the pale of what I'm willing to accept, as it strays a bit too far into discounting the entirety of Azimbo mythology, but it's still certainly a compelling idea. So, with a critical reading of these traditional histories, what can we say about the Vazimba? Well, the theory that I personally find the most compelling goes a little something like this. The Vazimba were a group of people living in the Malagasy Highlands before the migration of the coastal Hova into their homelands. Like the Hova, they were Austronesians who practiced subsistence farming and metalworking. With the arrival of the Hova, some intermarriage occurred, especially if we believe the claims of later Marina noble families. And that's where we leave off the story for now. With our perception of the Vazimba established, we can now continue the story of our two half-Vazimba brothers, the joint kings of Merimanjaka. Join us in our next episode as the brothers' relationship burns and deteriorates, and the kingdom of Merina rises from the ashes. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Faglamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Penza, Dimitri, Manuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sevalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascalin Wakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Noabodike, Sheyuno Lorontimain, Kwacho Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, and Samuel Badu, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really means a lot.